You know, they say, they say that books don't change people. Paragraphs change people. Paragraphs. Now, I don't know if anyone actually says that, but I say that. And I believe it's true that sometimes it's a single paragraph within a book that changes and transforms people's lives. And there's one paragraph in particular that has changed my life. In fact, what I'm about to read to you, and I might be on the screen, uh, literally has shaped my entire view of God, especially his comprehensive control over all things in the universe and everything that happens in it. And, and what's interesting is the paragraph that has changed me doesn't actually come from a book, but from a doctrinal statement at a church. Doctrinal statement. And at this particular church, the elders, the pastors, they're so gripped by the towering majesty of God and who he is that they felt the need to put this about him in their statement of faith. And this has changed my life. It goes like this. We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain Whatever comes to pass, it goes on. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, the public plans of politicians and the secret acts of solitary persons, and here it is, and even the existence of evil and sin, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot to process. And yet that paragraph is staggering to me. Not only for how gutsy it is, because it is gutsy, but what I see in that paragraph, it just only confirms and articulates exactly how I see God described in the Bible itself. In fact, that's exactly what I see about God described in Isaiah chapter 45. That he is a God who freely and unchangeably ordains whatever comes to pass. That he is a God who upholds and governs all things, including sin and evil, all to display the fullness of his glory for the everlasting enjoyment of all who love him. That is what it means for God to be God. And that is the message of Isaiah chapter 45. And the reason it is the message of that chapter is because that's what you give to a people brittle in faith and crushed in spirit. Crazy though it sounds, that that's what you give to a people of faded hope and grim despair, which is exactly what Isaiah's audience was. And the reason why they were is because every sign seemed to show that God had called it quits with his people. That he had filed for divorce that he had canceled the covenants, that he took back his promises, that he washed his hands of the people of Israel. And it looked that way precisely because the people to whom Isaiah were writing were 2,000 miles away in Babylon in exile. 
They were taken captive, ripped from their homes, hauled to Babylon in shackles and chains, dumped in a slum reserved for the Jews. You understand, once you go into exile, you do not come back from exile. It's over. I mean, you understand, that is a staggering theological crisis because that has one of two possible explanations. Either one, Yahweh canceled the promises that he made with his chosen people, or two, God was too weak to preserve or protect his people. Either way, everything they had ever hoped or dreamed for the future had now disappeared like smoke in the wind. Except that it hadn't. It hadn't disappeared. Yahweh didn't cancel the promises. He wasn't too weak to preserve or protect his people. And the reason why is because there was a third option on the table, a third explanation of the situation, namely that from all eternity, God ordained whatever comes to pass. That in some jarring mystery beyond our ability to fathom that God himself even ordained that sin and evil exist. Because that's exactly what Isaiah 45 verse 7 says. God is speaking. And he says, I am the one who forms light. And I am the one who creates darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I am Yahweh who does all of these things. I create evil? What does that even mean? How could God say this? Why would he say to a bunch of hurting people that he is the one who creates evil? Because you understand that Hebrew word there, it means evil. There's no way that's true. And yet it has to be true because God is the one who says it. And any aversion that we have to that statement lies not in the fact that God said it, but in our misunderstanding of what God means by it. And that is, in fact, our only agenda this morning. To get to the bottom of what it means that God is the creator of evil. What it means that he's sovereign over sin. How, how people are responsible if they're for their own sin, if God is the one who ordains it. Because you understand, God meant for this to be helpful. He meant this to be a rock of stability, an anchor for the soul, and the deepest possible evidence in the world that he can and must be trusted. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if Calvin doesn't change your life. I'm not concerned if you never read Jonathan Edwards. But I am convinced that paragraphs change people. And I want you to be changed by the paragraph of Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 8. Not light, not simple, not easy, but is light, simple, and easy really what your soul needs anyway? So here we go. This morning, I want you to see four statements. Four statements about the sovereignty of God that you should embrace, affirm, and proclaim with joy. 
Four statements about the control of God over all things that you should embrace, affirm, and proclaim with joy, which we'll see at the end. But to get there, we have two parts. Two parts first that we need to wrestle with. And part one is this. Number one, an exposition of God as the creator of evil. An exposition of God as the creator of evil. In other words, briefly, briefly, we need to look at what Yahweh actually says. If we're going to understand what God means when he says that he is the creator of evil, we have to examine that actual statement in the actual context itself. And you understand that statement that God creates evil actually occurs in the larger theological context of chapters 40 through 66, right? Which you remember was not written to the people of Isaiah's own day, but to a generation of Jews yet to be born. Remember that? Chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah is writing to a group of people 120 years in the future, to the very people trapped in Babylon. And what that means at the outset is that chapter 45, shocking though it is, actually makes a lot of sense since it occurs in a series of chapters which by themselves prove that God is sovereign, right? Since he's writing to a people 120 years in the future. And yet, and yet, chapters 40 through 66, hang with me now, within chapters 40 through 66, chapters 40 through 48 is a logical, intentional unit. They go together. They have a message. And, of course, it begins in chapter 40. And you remember what chapter 40 is. Chapter 40 is, without question, the most devastating glimpse of the majesty of God found in the pages of Scripture. That's chapter 40. And the point of that chapter is that all that God is in the glory of his perfections is the guarantee that his plan can and will succeed. That all that God is, that he will fulfill his plan and that all that he is, is the guarantee that he will. But you see, what you have to understand is that chapters 41 through 48, listen carefully, they are an exposition of the implications of chapter 40. What I mean is chapters 41 through 48 do nothing but expand and, and elaborate on the things God said about himself in chapter 40. And one of the things God mentioned in chapter 40 is that he is sovereign over kings. Kings and rulers and presidents. Chapter 40 said this, that God brings rulers to nothing. That he makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely were they planted. Scarcely were they sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root on the earth. He even blows on them and they wither. And the windstorm carries them away like stubble. So the kings of the earth loudly proclaim their power and their supremacy. But from God's perspective, they are no stronger than a daffodil in a hurricane. The point is God is the one who plants the rulers. He is the one who appoints the kings. And whenever he darn well pleases, he removes them out of existence. And you see one such example of his ability to do so is in the case of Cyrus, the king, which now brings us to chapter 45, our current chapter. And last week, if you remember, if you were here, you remember that we saw that chapter 45 is probably the most particular prophecy in the entire Bible because this dude is mentioned by name a full century before he was ever even born. 
and who he was. He was the Persian king who conquered Babylon in 539 BC. Think of this. Isaiah's writing in 701 BC. That's 162 years beforehand. And verses 1 through 3 of chapter 45 are clear. Everything Cyrus would do, the nations he would conquer, the wars he would win, the kings he would kill, the treasure he would steal, all of his military might and power, all of it, all of it predetermined by God himself. But that's not all Cyrus would do. Because as it turns out in a turn of events that no one could have ever imagined except God who ordained it is that this pagan Persian king who had no idea who Yahweh was released the Jews from captivity, allowed them to go back home to Israel, and not only gave them permission to rebuild the city and the temple, but even covered the cost to do so out of his own pocket. Why would he do that? That literally doesn't make the least bit of sense. Unless, of course, God ordains all that comes to pass, which is exactly what he does. And 162 years later in 539 B.C., that is exactly what happened. And God explains, God explains why he did this, why he chose this pagan Persian king to do his will. He explains in verse 6, look at the text. I did it this way. I chose him to do this so that they would know. From the rising of the sun and to its setting that there is no other besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. That's the reason. That's the reason God did it this way. So that one day every nation under the sun would know about this and talk about this and marvel over God choosing this pagan Persian king to do his will. That one day the nations are going to talk about this. They're going to know about this and what will be their conclusion. What does verse 6 say? That there is no other besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. In other words, it is for his glory. And yet that's the question, isn't it? The question is, what is it about this God that makes him so unique? What is it about this God that makes him so worthy of our attention and admiration and worship and trust? At the end of the day, the question is, what does it mean for God to be God? And in verse 7 is the deepest answer to that question. Look at the text. God is speaking, don't forget, and he says, I am the one who forms light and creates darkness. I am the one who makes peace, and I am the one who creates evil. I am Yahweh who does all of these things. I mean, you see it, right? To show what it means for God to be God and why he must be trusted, God has to open the vault and show us the good stuff. No discount platitudes will do. 
No dollar store cliches are going to cut it. No, if we're going to say that God is sovereign and worthy of trust, we have to be willing to say what he says about himself here. And yet, frankly, most believers are not willing to repeat what he just said, but they could, but they can, and they must, and they should, because it is glorious and profound. We saw it last week. Let's briefly do it again. You notice verse 7, look carefully. It has two pairs, and each pair of statements contain two objects at the opposite ends of the spectrum. There is light and darkness. There is peace, and there is evil. And the thing about those pairs is that grammatically, they are parallel. They're parallel. The same thing said two different ways. Notice, light and peace are the same. Darkness and evil are the same. Which means when God says that he creates, forms light, that means that he is the one who makes peace. When it says that he is the one who creates darkness, that means he is the one who creates evil. Same thing said two different ways. And what you have to understand is that light and dark are metaphors for the second set of terms. Peace and evil. I pointed it out last week, but notice the verbs. Notice the verbs, strong and active. Nothing passive. God himself doing the action. He, God, forms light. He creates darkness. He makes peace. He creates evil. Notice what verbs are not there. The verbs that we use and way prefer. Allow and permit and let not in the text. And for God to form light is exactly the same as he makes peace. It's exactly the same. And these are beautiful realities because, because light is a metaphor for salvation and, and truth. Light is a vivid way to describe what life will be like when all things are right, which is exactly what the word peace means. Your Bible may say, well-being, the word is peace. The word is shalom in the Hebrew, and that's the word the Bible uses for the return to paradise. When God brings all things back to their pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions, it is when God makes all things be the way they ought to be, which he will do in the kingdom of his Son. And so far, so good, right? We love this. We agree with this. We have no problem with this. Yes, God is the one who saves. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who will bring paradise back to earth. This is what God does. This is what it means for God to be God. And yet, for God to be God must mean that he also controls the other side of the spectrum. God forms light, absolutely. But he also creates the darkness. And by darkness, he doesn't mean literal darkness. He's not talking about the absence of photon particles. Rather, darkness is a metaphor for evil. And Yahweh makes it clear that he creates darkness, which means that he creates evil. That is what the text says. And I know your version says calamity or some alternative term, and that's okay. That's just okay. But there, the Hebrew word is the word for evil. And if you prefer a different term, that's totally fine. That's totally fine, just as long as you're willing to honor that the meaning of that term has to include acts of evil and deeds of sin. 
I mentioned it last week that that term is used 347 times in the Old Testament to describe things like invasion and murder and malice and treachery and betrayal and kidnapping and idolatry. That is the word for the wickedness of Sodom. That is the word for what happened to Job. That is the word the Bible uses for what David did, the, the, the adultery with, with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. It's the word for demonic activity. It is the word for individual acts of sin. It is the Hebrew word ra, and it means evil. And God is the one who creates it. Which doesn't mean that he does evil because he most certainly does not do evil. God does not do evil, delight in evil, approve of evil, participate in evil, condone evil, or minimize evil in any way. That's impossible. He is God. I said it last week, what you've always believed, what you've always believed about God's holiness and his love and his righteousness is all still true. This does not contradict that. The same holy God of chapter 6 is the same holy God who says that he creates evil. And what that means, what that means is that just as creation itself was God's idea, so sin and evil in his creation was also God's. had to be. It just had to be. If there was a force or power outside of God as the ultimate explanation, God ceases to be sovereign and ceases to be God. And simply saying, simply saying that God merely knew about it or merely allowed it to happen, then makes the best of it, just doesn't match up with the biblical language. That's not sufficient. That's not even the language the Bible uses. Instead of solving the problem of evil, that kind of language only creates more problems. God does more than merely know. The role of God is way more active than merely allowing sin and evil and then trying to make the best of it. No, no, Christianity is not some dualistic, dualistic yin and yang where God and Satan are fighting it out evenly matched. No, God, no, man and Satan are creatures. They did not force anything upon God that he himself had not already decreed from all eternity. Instead, listen carefully, God creates evil in the sense that he ordained it, decreed it, and brought it into being. Which begs the question, if that's true, and it is, why would he do that? What would be, what would be the purpose of that? What would be the goal of that? What would that accomplish? And in a sense, God has already answered that question in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Namely, that all would know that he is God and there is no other. 
And I know, I know this hits like a ton of bricks. And, and it's hard to believe that it's true. And it's hard to believe that it's good news. But it is. It is, and any objections that we have to this simply lies in our failure to understand what it means for God to be God. We can't imagine, we can't imagine that the love of God would fashion a plan with evil and sin, and yet that is exactly what he has done. We can't imagine that a world of evil and pain is the best of all possible worlds that God could have created. And that is exactly what he's done. We can't imagine that there are levels of glory and joy that await us in the future that could not be possible unless sin and evil had existed in the world. And that is precisely what is going to happen And I understand this is not easy. And thankfully, thankfully, God nowhere says in the Bible that you have to fully understand this. Nor is he saying that you necessarily even have to like this at first. But he is asking us to trust him, isn't he? We need to trust him and believe that his motives for making a plan like this were righteous and good and loving and wise. I mean, I think of Isaiah, we're standing here. I think he would say, look, you don't have to figure this all out today. There's time, but you do have to trust God and know that no matter how deep we probe into the motives of God for bringing pain and affliction into our lives, that we will never arrive at a layer not driven by his love. I think he would say, God is not asking you to just get this today. But he is asking you to trust him and, and to think the best about him and, and to remember that his, that his love and compassion are not incompatible with his sovereignty, but that they are, in fact, inseparable. I think he would say God is not asking you to understand this today. But if you hang on a little longer and trust him, knowing that God's ways are not our ways, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and that riches of glory and joy await us in the future that will make all the pain we have experienced worth it in the end. Only with God can that be true. Which brings us to part two. Part two, which I'm calling a presentation of God's control over evil. A presentation of God's control over evil because you have to understand is that the jarring statement of Isaiah 45 with all of its mystery and power is but one verse in the Bible which again and again sings the same note. Namely that God decrees all that comes to pass. You know what I'm saying is Isaiah 45, 7 is only one place in the Bible that says that God is sovereign over sin. I mean, it is everywhere. It is everywhere in the Bible. And what we have to do is have the courage to say what the Bible says. Because when we 
settle that issue once and for all. There is a stability and joy that could not otherwise be obtained. And so here it is. Here is a theology, a biblical theology of God's control over all things, including light and darkness and peace and evil. And all these, if you have notes, all these verses that I'm about to read are in those notes. And this all begins at the beginning. And by that, I mean, of course, before the beginning, before the beginning, because you see, God makes it clear that nothing he does is willy-nilly, random, left to chance, fly by the seat of his pants. Rather, before the ages began, God made a plan and there was nothing that was not included. Ephesians 1.11 is clear. God is the one who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. That is a staggering statement. Even foundational to your understanding of God and the world. Because Paul just said, God has a will. And he works all things that happen according to that will. Which means, listen carefully, the will of God existed before anything else existed. And everything that happens is according to what God has already written. And there was nothing that was not included. Put it this way, the will of God is what God ordained to happen. And everything that happens is what God ordained. See, before time, God already wrote the script of history. He already wrote the script. And like an all-wise, all-powerful director... He is directing every scene of what he wrote, including the scenes of sin and the moments of evil. And you have to understand, church, that the Bible speaks of God's will in two different ways. God's will in two different ways. There is a will of God you can know, and there is a will of God you can't. There's one you can and one you can't know. And the will of God you can know, theologians call God's will of command. God's will of command. These are the things in his word he tells you to do. These are the things in his word he tells you not to do. In other words, the word of God is the will of God and what he wants for your life. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life. And other things. So God's will of command is what he commands in his word, and that is the will of God you can know and should know. There's no guesswork or mystery at all with God's will. It is the word of God itself, but at the same time, at the same time, there is a will of God that you can't know, that you can't know. And it's what theologians call God's will of decree, God's will of decree. This is the very will that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, 11. That, that's what he means. 
It is what God decreed. It is what God ordained. It is the plan of God designed by God before the universe was made. And it includes every single moment of history. And you can't know what it is until or after it happens. Do you see? Creation was God's will. The exodus was God's will. The incarnation was God's will. The crucifixion was God's will. Caesar, Caesar crossing the Rubicon was God's will. Ancient Gaul being divided up into three parts was God's will. Your birth was God's will. The civil war was God's will. Your car starting this morning was God's will. And every single moment that has or will transpire is the will of God's decree. And maybe you think, hold on a second. Just, just, just wait a second here. Are you saying, are you saying that the fall was God's will? That Satan's temptation in the garden was God's will? That the betrayal of Judas was God's will? That 9-11 was God's will? That that evil act or that wicked deed or the sin that I committed this morning, that that was God's will? Is that what you're saying? And the answer is, to the question, is that God's will? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Sin and evil in the world is God's will, and yet sin and evil is not God's will. Do you see where this is going? God's will of command, God's will of decree. You see, sin and evil are against God's will of command, his will of command. He explicitly said not to do them. They are wicked and evil, and God is angered because of them. And yet, at the exact same time, those were what God decreed. And just because God decreed, willed those things, gives, changes, no, changes nothing about people's individual responsibility, it doesn't make them less evil. And it also doesn't mean that God sinned. It was not sin for God to will that sin exist, precisely because sin would display the supremacy of his son. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for the end. The point here is that God ordains whatever comes to pass, and nothing is not. There is nothing that's not included. Even the decisions of our lives. Look at Proverbs 19.21 in your notes. It's incredible. Many are the plans in the heart of man. But the counsel of Yahweh will stand. Do you hear it? God's will of decree? Many are the plans of man, but what Yahweh has decreed will stand. And I know, I know that's tough to reconcile with human logic. But the point is not that what we do doesn't matter, the point is that what we do doesn't change the plan. And I just want to know, can you live with that? Can you live without, with that mystery? Without trying to change what the Bible says? Because even Solomon, even Solomon, the, the, the most brilliant man in history apart from Christ, even he 
couldn't fully understand the mystery that we are responsible for what we do, and yet everything is ordained by God. Proverbs 20, verse 24, one of the greatest mysteries ever described. Listen to what it says. The steps of a man are ordained by Yahweh. Follow up. How can man understand his way? Do you hear what he does? This is, this is crazy. That's our question. That's what we want to know. If our lives, if our very steps are ordained by God, well, how does that square with human responsibility? And the answer is, both can be true. And both are true. And we just live in the beautiful tension that God is sovereign in such a way that in no way minimizes anyone's personal responsibility or accountability. We're not responsible to know what God decreed. We're only responsible to do what God commands. The greatest text, the greatest text on the sovereign will of God, Isaiah 46. I know this is heavy lifting. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, listen carefully. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Well, what is it about God that makes him so unique? Look what it says. I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which were not yet done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I mean, what do you make of that? He just said that before the beginning began, he already designed the ending of the plan. That's what he just described. And that all of history is the unfolding of God's decree. That everything he planned to do, all of his good pleasure, he will do that very thing. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And I know that's tough. I know that's tough, that's hard to conceive, especially when it comes to suffering and pain. And I know that you have suffered. I know that you have suffered. And other people have suffered too. I read about a woman this week from India, born with a disease, was misdiagnosed, was crippled by the cure. By age 14, she had 21 surgeries. None of them worked. She got saved in high school. She got married. Had multiple, multiple miscarriages. Her second child died in her husband's arms at two months old. And this is what she said. I have read many books on suffering. But they are often so man-centered and nullify or at least diminish the glory, majesty, and sovereignty of God. It is radical thinking to say that God wills and ordains our suffering and not just passively allows it, hoping to make the best of it for us. But as I have grown in my walk, I can see that nothing in this world happens apart from the sovereign will of God. I'm not saying that's easy to believe. I'm saying that's probably the hardest thing to believe. And it may even take years of 
of grappling with the word of God before you settle the issue, which is totally fine. That's totally fine. And yet what helps us get to the place where we say what this woman said, or rather who helps us get to that place is none other than Joseph himself. Remember Joseph? Genesis 37 through 50. Betrayed by his brothers. Sold as a slave wrongfully accused, falsely imprisoned, and with all the legitimate gripes and rage he could have harbored, what was his interpretation of the events? Genesis 50, verse 20, he said this to his brothers. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about the present result and preserve many people alive. But do you hear that? The, the, the brothers of Joseph did what they did out of the sewer of their hearts. And Joseph rightly calls it evil because that's exactly what it was. And yet, what did he say? You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Meant what for good? What? What is the it that God meant for good? It is the very evil planned and executed by the brothers. Do you see? The very same evil they planned to get rid of Joseph was the very same evil God planned to save the life of many, namely the people of Israel. Same word, same action, same sin, Totally different motives, radically different results. They committed the sin. God planned it. They both planned it, but for radically different reasons, radically different results. Five chapters earlier, Joseph said the same thing. He looked at his brothers and he says, says do, not be, do not be grieved, brothers. Let your eyes not be angry that you have sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to save life. Do you hear that? God sent me to Egypt. God did that. What you did was evil. But what you did, God decreed. And it was for the good. Psalm 105. Listen to Psalm 105 and its interpretation of the life of Joseph. Verses 16 and 17. These are all still in your notes. This is astonishing. It says, and he, God, called for a famine on the land. And he broke the whole staff of bread. He, God, sent before them a man, Joseph, sold as a slave. Do you see that? God planned the famine. God planned the betrayal of the brothers. God is the one who sent Joseph down to Egypt. Why would God do this? So that 400 years later, he could save his people from Egypt put his glory on display and preserve his people from whom the Messiah would come and die for sinners. That's why. Joseph helps us settle the issue to see that sin is planned and guided by God. Job helps us settle the issue too, doesn't he? Maybe more than anyone. And, and I know that you know well what, what happened to Job. 
But maybe you missed God's hand in it all because the text is clear. Although Satan was the agent actually doing the evil, God was the cause that ordained the evil. What did Job say at the end of, his, uh, at the end of chapter 1? Naked I came from the womb of my mother. Naked there I will return. Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Interpretation, God has done this. Yes, he used means. And although he didn't personally do the evil, he is the one who ultimately brought the evil. He said the same thing to his grieving wife in, in chapter 2. Do you remember? In anger and despair, which we totally do not fault her for. She said to her husband, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. To which he responds, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, which is profound. And actually, we need to back up because notice what she said, curse God and die. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it reveals, her statement reveals that she knew perfectly well that God was the one who brought the affliction to which her husband responds. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Normally, you don't speak this way, wife. Normally, you are very wise, but right now you are speaking as one of the foolish women. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept evil? It's the same word, Isaiah 45, 7. And what Job just said was blasphemy. What he just said was heresy. How dare Job speak about God in that way? And yet it is not heresy. It is orthodoxy to say that good and evil both come from God and the very next phrase affirms that Job was exactly right it says in all of this Job did not sin with his lips at the end of the book sings the same note chapter 42 verse 11 all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all of his friends came to him and they comforted him for all of the evil Yahweh brought upon him. Other texts preach the same, same, same thing. Amos 3.6 When evil occurs in a city, is it not Yahweh who has done it? Lamentations 3.38 From the mouth of the Most High, both evil and good come Forth. That doesn't mean that God is both good and evil, but that God ordains both good and evil, which sounds crazy to us. That sounds unthinkable to us because for years and years, we have been conditioned by a mushy theology that says, okay, the good comes from God, blessings come from God, but the other things, I'm going to leave that unspecified. Satan, or what some call free will, But that is not sufficient, nor is it biblical, as the ultimate explanation. And isn't it interesting to you that, that verse, that shocking verse in Lamentations that I just read, 
that that comes only a handful of verses after the most loved and comforting verses, perhaps, in the entirety of the Bible. Yahweh's loving kindnesses, indeed, never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Yahweh is my portion. Therefore, my soul has hope in him. And then a few verses later, 338, from the mouth of the Most High, both evil and good come forth. What is the point? The point is the foundation of real hope and comfort in Yahweh is the reality that nothing in our lives happens apart from his decree. One last text to seal the deal. And this one's the most important. This text is the most important. So many problems solved, so many questions answered, so much comfort given by Acts 4, 27 and 28. And it all has to do with the sufferings of Christ. And this is also in your notes. Acts 4, 27 and 28. It's the disciples, the apostles praying and they say, for truly there was gathered in your holy city Against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, here's who was gathered against him, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, here it is, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So much evil. So Many evil people converged upon the Son, the infinitely worthy one, the God who became man for us and for our salvation. And yet, what did the text say? All the evil things they did to the Son is what God's hand and His purpose predestined to occur. And it brought salvation. Don't you see the paradigm? Just as that evil resulted in something greater than the evil itself, so the pain in our lives will result in something greater than the pain in our lives. It's not just that God is sovereign over evil. And sovereignty is not like, you know, just some raw, brutal control of history. And if your life just happens to get caught in the gears, well, then so be it. No, beloved, no. The sovereignty of God is a loving sovereignty. The love of God is a sovereign love. Therefore, the sovereign love of God ordained that sin would exist to bring about redemption. Beloved, we just don't see the full picture yet. It's hard to fathom. That's hard to believe. We can't imagine that there's a way that Jesus Christ will make all the evil in the world worth it in the end. But that's exactly the plan that God ordained. Closing illustration and then some applications. Is God the author of evil? Is God the author of evil? It's a good question. And ironically, the, the, the metaphor of author is often the very thing that people use to save God from culpability and responsibility, right? 
I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation with people about this very subject and they say, well, God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin because in their minds, to author sin would be to be guilty of sin and yet that's neither true nor accurate. Because at the end of the day, I can't think of a better illustration for God than an author. He wrote the story of redemption, did he not? The plot is his. The storyline is his. The characters are his. There is a once upon a time. There is a happy ever after. Everything in between is written by him. And the, and the, the point of the story is the glory of a redeemer. Of a mighty king who will slay the dragon. Save his people and build a kingdom. He will break the serpent's spell. He will lift the devil's curse. He will bring the planet back to its pristine pre-fall paradise-like conditions. You understand, that's what, that's what the Bible is. That's what Scripture is. A salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror. My point is, no one, no one thinks J.R.R. Tolkien is a wicked man or a bad author for including evil in his story, The Lord of the Rings. No one thinks that. In fact, we credit Tolkien as an even greater author precisely because he included evil in his story, which makes it a beautiful tale of glory and redemption. And that is exactly the case with God. And if you can accept it this morning, God is the author of evil. Because he's the author of everything. You understand, evil was not presented to God by someone outside of him, and he passively allowed it into the script. And no one took the manuscript when he wasn't looking, wrote evil into the script, and then handed it in without his knowing. No, like the master author God is, God wrote a tale with sin and evil and sinners who need a savior to put the supremacy of his son on open display. And we are at this moment in the middle of that saga. And yet the happy ever after is coming. I'll close with this. Some implications, statements. Paragraphs change people's lives. Sentences change people's lives. I want to leave you with four sentences, four statements of the control of God that you should embrace, affirm, and proclaim with joy. Number one, these are going to go fast. Number one, sin and evil in the world is the best possible world. This is the best of all possible worlds that God could have created precisely because a world with evil and sin will in the end show the full display of God's glory and perfections. What I mean is God is more glorified by a fallen, needing redemption world than he is by an unfallen, not needing redemption world. 
And the reason is because to redeem fallen creatures forces God, if you will, to reveal the full panorama of his perfections for our everlasting enjoyment forever. Put it this way, sin and evil in the world is the black velvet tapestry that puts the priceless jewels of his perfections prominently on display. Number two. The sovereign love of God ordained that sin exist for the supremacy of his son. The love of God ordained that sin would exist for the supremacy of his son. I mean, John 17 is clear about this. For all eternity, the father looked upon his son and loved the beauty and glory of a son, and out of an overflow of his affection for his son, crafted a plan with his son at the center so that we could see and enjoy what he had seen and enjoyed forever, namely the beauty of his son. And to do that, God put a plan in place that would most fully display the beauty of his son, which meant a plan with evil and sin. And when the son crushes, sin and evil and death under his feet and we reign with him in the glory of his kingdom, then we will know what the Father was talking about. Number three, God hates and punishes the very sin that he himself ordained. God hates and punishes and forgives the very sin that he himself ordained. I don't know how to make sense of the Bible unless something like this is the case. And this has to be the case. I mean, only with God can something like this be true. This is what proves that God is not a monster. Because in the complexity of what makes God, God, only he can hate and punish and forgive the very sin that he ordained. And number four, number four, the heart of God flows with compassion for the very pain that he inflicts. The heart of God flows with compassion for the very pain that he inflicts. You see, crazy though it sounds, God has appropriate emotional responses to the very pain that he predestined. Compassion is your pain in God's heart, which moves him to deeds of love and mercy on your behalf. And that is precisely why he brought that pain in the first place, because there are undiscovered depths of his sufficiency that we would not otherwise know had he not brought the pain in the first place. And there are other statements. I had like five others. But this was a lot. This was, this was hard to write. Uh, this was really hard to preach. I, I'm sure this was hard to hear. But at the end of the day, the response to God's control is clear and profoundly supernatural. That we should take this sacred book into our hands. And even with a sense of trembling in our souls... Plead with God for eyes to see and ears to hear and courage to worship and say with Job, 
Yahweh gives. Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful that there are some mysteries beyond solving in this life. And all we did today, this morning, Lord, was talk about mystery, was articulate a mystery. All we did was think about things that are too high for us, too deep for us, too broad for us, too wonderful for us. And Lord, I, I pray, I know, that, I know the, the default instinct and, and, and reaction of every human heart to this, but I, I pray, O oh Lord, that, that, that if, that if the, the fruit that would come to this is not necessarily that we would have to figure this out fully, but that we would trust. Help us to trust and hope and cling and delight and rejoice, knowing that you are the master author, governing everything that comes to pass and that we are always safe in your sovereign hands. It's in the mighty and matchless name of your Son that we pray.